All right. And then um, finally, uh, the Catherine D. Ennis SIG Scholar Award. Um, thank you to the committee members. So as you all know, the former um, award winner chairs that committee every year and they put together a committee. So this year, the committee members included Darla Castelli as chair, and then Kathy Armour, Thomas Templin, or Tom Templin, and Nate McCautry. So thank you um, to all of those past SIG scholars who uh, chaired uh, the committee. And congratulations to Katie Fitzpatrick, who is our 2021 Catherine B. Ennis SIG Scholar Award winner. Um, and you are going to hear the lecture from today. Um, just so everybody knows, there was seven nominations. Uh, how the SIG Scholar Award works is it carries over, the nominations carry over for um, three years. So uh, we do send out new polls every year and give the opportunity for people to update their um, nominations. Um, but as Kevin alluded to earlier, this is one of this is the highest um, honor that you can get in our SIG. And so we're really happy to have Katie with us today as our 2021 winner. And now I'm going to turn it over um, to Dylan Landy, who is going to introduce uh, Katie before her uh, talk today. Dylan, Thanks, Aaron. Just one second to get you spotlighted and get me off this screen. Oh, we don't need to make me a spotlight. That's fine. Thank you. Okay, we'll start talking and we got you <laughs> now. <laughs> tene koto, tene koto, tene koto katoa. It is my distinct pleasure to introduce Associate Professor Katie Fitzpatrick as the 2021 Catherine D. Ennis Outstanding Scholar Award recipient. Historically, persons who introduced these award winners would go on a bit of a historical trail, outlining the person's career, highlighting their multiple achievements, of which there are many for Katie, discussing scholarship and how that scholarship has been funded or cited across a variety of places. And maybe talk about the leadership roles this person has demonstrated in the field. If I were to be so linear, I would start by talking about how Katie received her PhD at the University of Waikato, where her thesis won the Sutton Smith Doctoral Award for Most Outstanding Education Thesis in all of Aotearoa, New Zealand. To this day, it's the only one to win in health and physical education. I could go on to say that her solo authored book, Critical Pedagogy, Urban Schooling and Physical Education, won the Outstanding Book Award at NAS. Or for those of you who are interested in metrics, she's received over a million dollars in grants, written three books, edited four others, and has been first author on over 50 peer reviewed journal articles and chapters. I would talk about how she's on the editorial boards for some of the most prestigious journals in physical education, health education, sexuality education, and research methodologies, and is now the head of school for curriculum and pedagogy at the University of Auckland. But if you knew Katie, you would know these metrics, awards, funding mechanisms, and leadership posts are not what drive her. Rather, Katie's work, from my perspective, uh, perspective as her former doctoral student, is driven by movement. Those of us who sit here, when we hear the word movement, we automatically think of physical activity or moving bodies. And yes, Katie has a health and PE background and she has moved bodies, but those aren't the only movements Katie has spurred. Katie's career has been about the movement and empowerment to provide opportunities for those people who normally would not have them. Within leadership roles, she creates, she creates cultivates and provides opportunities for women, LGBTQIA persons, working class background, Maori Pacifica persons, in order to empower some of us, myself included, 
Katie works to crack open restricted spaces. She does this through encouragement and enabling us to see ourselves in a new light. But she also, has does, uh, she also does this by focusing on the environment in which we're in place. In other words, movement is not just about moving bodies. For Katie, it's also about moving hearts, moving minds, and moving agendas. For those of us who have been moved by Katie to engage in this type of work, we learn very quickly. The forms of racism, sexism, ableism, and other isms that we seek to end, many in our field do not even recognize as existing. Therefore, much of the work Katie has embarked on is about moving or convincing the others that these inequities have not ended and they do matter. Therefore, Katie's work is based in hope, the hope that we as a field can be better and there's a purpose to working through our collective struggles. Not all these movements are known to Katie though. I received a text just this morning from a friend. She said, Katie's work was the first I finally came across that made me laugh smile, think deeper and realize that it's okay not to write in traditional ways in PE and health, to include yourself, but try not to center yourself, to demonstrate love. You see, Katie doesn't know all the movements that she spurs, but they carry affects that spread and connect, create new affects that spread and connect. We may talk about a movement being strong when we witness momentum building around it, several people coming to a speech, many readers engaging in Katie's work. Thus, moving bodies, hearts, and minds, and agendas are not singular acts. They require persistence, making connections, and the ever so slightness of grace that keeps those connections intact. The first day I met Katie, she looked at me and said, Dylan, relationships are everything. This is because relationships are fragile. They can break. When we think about the momentum that Katie has built in our field, it's based on the powerful relationships people have come to make with her and her work. So I wanna close this introduction with the words I gently and intentionally place at the beginning of my thesis. Katie, I'm forever indebted to your generosity, perspicacious feedback and deep insights. You employ a pedagogy of affect where concepts are made into modalities of the body. Because of your openness and passion, you have inspired me to express myself and my work in ways I could never have imagined. I owe you an indescribable gratitude as a mentor, but I am even more grateful for you as a scholar. Without your scholarship in this field, my work wouldn't exist. I'm privileged to have learned from you firsthand. So Katie, thank you for all that you do. And without further ado, please join me in welcoming Associate Professor Katie Fitzpatrick as the AERA SIG 93 Catherine Ennis Scholar Lecturer. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Dylan. That's an incredibly generous intro that I, I don't think I'm going to be able to live up to. You're just about making me cry at the, at the beginning of my talk. Um, thank you. I'm going to I'm going to share my screen now and um, see if I can get my talk to work. Hopefully you can you can see that. Okay. Cool, Erin's giving me the thumbs up, that's good. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Nga mihi nui ki a koutou. As Dylan said, my name is Katie Fitzpatrick. I'm from the University of Auckland in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And it's an incredible honour to, to be invited um, to give this talk to the Research on Learning and Instruction in Physical Education SIG at AERA in 2021. 
I look at the list of academics who've given this scholar award before me, this lecture, um, and I can't really understand how I'm on this list. I want to thank those who nominated me, um, the awards committee and the SIG organisers. Um, a really special thanks to Kevin Richards and and Erin Santeo, who I'm, I'm sure you will agree have done such a great job organising um, this uh, conference and SIG sessions online and really challenging um, circumstances with challenging technology. Um, and I think they've made the, the online sessions incredibly welcoming and, and inclusive as well. I'm really sad that I, that I didn't have to get on a plane and um, travel to the US, which I, I always enjoy coming to um, for, this, for this conference. But I'm also really grateful that we do get to meet um, in some capacity and share our scholarship together um, across time and space. Also, congratulations to Danetta Cothran. It's a, it's a real honor for me to, to be able to do my lecture in the same um, year and space as her, even though she would have preferred, I'm sure, to do hers last year. And she did a fantastic job of, of that lecture. She set a really high bar. I want to begin by acknowledging um, my significant mentors in the field, um, Steve Silverman, Richard Tinning, Jan Wright, and John Evans. Um, each of these people has, has supported my thinking, my career, and, and supported me personally, improved my scholarship in the field in fundamental ways, and I wouldn't be able to do the work that I do without those people. As a field, I think we need to continue to support each other um, and to engage with what others in ways that challenge ideas, but also support people. And that's something I appreciate about all four of, of those excellent scholars is that they care for others, even while they're pushing the boundaries of knowledge um, in the field. So in this talk, I'm, I'm going to um, share some, some of my thinking about the field of physical education. I'm going to think a little bit about um, the ongoing issues that our, that our subject has with status in academic hierarchies. I'm going to think a little bit about um, the well-being agenda that seems to be sweeping the globe. It's certainly um, having a moment in, in New Zealand, and I know it is in other places and in the US as well. And I'm going to think about how the research in the field is potentially speaking to um, issues of subject status and the well-being agenda. I think it's quite daunting at this historical moment to think about the field of physical education in flux as, as we are in this moment of the global pandemic, which we know is going to last for some time. It's not going to go away um, quickly. Um, a lot of teachers and students can't meet in person right now um, in many places internationally, and teaching is necessar necessarily um, a digital undertaking. And we're unsure about the pros and cons of this and the, and the possible futures. One thing that is certain is that well-being is more firmly on the agenda than perhaps it ever has been before. And while we know that definitions of and approaches to well-being differ, this is certainly familiar territory um, and these are familiar debates for physical education, albeit in a very new and different political context. Um, I'm just going to tell you now a little bit about the structure of the talk and where we're going. Um, I'm going to start by sharing a couple of recent experiences of, of my own, a couple of stories. Those who know my work know that I like to do work in narrative. Um, and both of these kind of are just an intro into two of my themes. There's a story about um, issues of status and about well-being. I'm then going to reflect on, on how the field of physical education might approach inquiries 
more generally and thinking about status and well-being. And I'm going to build on some work that I've been doing for a little while now. Um, I spoke about some of these ideas at ICEP in, in um, New York. Um, and I'm thinking about what, what the kinds of work in the field might offer. Um, and I'm going to then talk about how we might respond to the low status of physical education and to the well-being agenda in productive ways. And I think that combining work from different parts of the field, different disciplinary knowledges might enable a way forward in this. Um, but first, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my background and, and how I got here. Um, Dylan, Dylan said a few lovely things, but um, I think it's important in, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, it's, it's a really important protocol to share where you're from and who you are so that people know and can make connections. Um, so the greeting that I be began with and that, that Dylan also began with is from Māori, the indigenous language of New Zealand. It's an official language of New Zealand. Um, New Zealand is formally, legally and politically a country founded post-colonisation on a treaty um, between Māori, the indigenous peoples and European settler colonists known as Pākehā. And I am Pākehā. I'm a sixth generation white New Zealander. My ancestors traveled to New Zealand on what are known as the first four ships. And my very good friend, Māori scholar Melinda Weber reminds me that they weren't really the first four ships to come to New Zealand because of course, Polynesian peoples were, were journeying all around the Pacific um, a long time before Europeans came here. My ancestors settled in, um, in Canterbury. That's where my parents still live. That's a photo of their farm. Um, my father, who's in his late 70s, is, is holding on for grim death to still staying on the farm, even though he's got all kinds of um, physical impediments that are preventing him from doing that, but he's not giving up. Um, and I studied at, I grew up here on the farm and then I studied at um, a Catholic high school and then at the University of Canterbury um, in Christchurch in the 1990s. And at that time, there was some radical changes going on in New Zealand in terms of curriculum and health and physical education. And there was a real shift to move towards more critical practices um, and a social justice focus, in addition to, to other aspects of physical education as well. Um, this curriculum shift has, has been recognized internationally, but we don't always see it actually happening in practice in schools, even though it's been there now for almost um, 30 years. After I graduated from Christchurch College of Education, the Teachers College and University of Canterbury, I shifted to Auckland to the north and um, taught at, at two different high schools in an area called South Auckland. And South Auckland is known for having large numbers of Māori, Indigenous and Pacific Island um, young people and communities. It's a low socioeconomic area um, and it's known, it's known for cultural diversity. I completed my PhD as Dylan said at the University of Waikato um, and I turned that study in, into um, the book that I, that I published in 2013. I now work at the University of Auckland and um, a big shout out to my amazing health and physical education colleagues at the University of Auckland. And we really miss having, having Dylan um, on, our, on our staff um, there. He wasn't only a, a PhD student, but a, a member of our faculty. Um, and I've been there now for 11 years. 
my work with schools and my own background has made me really passionate um, about health education, not only physical education, but also health education, because I see huge gaps in, in what's taught in schools and, and what the possibilities are. So I've continued to do work in, in sexuality education and in mental health education, as well as um, critical perspectives on health education and thinking about, about social theory and the role of social theory in the health education space. And I've just completed a, um, a five-year fellowship with the Royal Society um, of New Zealand, which allowed me to do work, um, ethnographic work in four different schools. And I worked with Jean Allen, um, who did her PhD on that project as well, to do it in, in intensive um, ethnography in four different schools. I'm not going to talk about that work today, but um, we are working on publishing that at the moment. Um, the other work that I do for those of you who, who aren't familiar with my work is um, some work on, on methodology. So this is a book, the, the book with a funny looking cover that doesn't look like it's actually been published yet because it hasn't, um, has been in, in, in progress for a number of years, but um, I'm, I'm hoping to get that submitted this year. And I do some work on, on poetry as well with um, my colleague Esther Fitzpatrick. Um, but right now, despite um, the kind of scholarship and the, and the journal publications that, that Dylan mentioned, right now the work that I'm actually most proud of um, are these texts here. These aren't academic texts. They don't get citations. They're not going to get me promoted. Um, the, the ones on the left are curriculum policy, national policy in New Zealand in relationships and, and sexuality education. So I worked with a team of people to write, um, to write this policy in 2015, and then we updated it last year. So this is a curriculum guide for all schools um, to teach sexuality and relationships education, but also to help them structure their schools around inclusive environments. And the book on the on the right is a is a text that I worked with a teacher from a school, Cat Wells, um, and with some other academics, Gillian Tasker, Melinda Weber, and Rachel Riddell. Um, to, this is 300 pages of lesson plans for teachers to work um, in the area of mental health education in Hauwara, which is Māori for an, a, an holistic model of health and well-being. Um, and to our kind of shock, this, this book has sold a lot of, it's sold about 4,000 copies, which is huge in New Zealand. And the Ministry of Education actually picked it up and sent it to every school in the country. So this is the this is the work. Despite despite the academic publishing work that I've done, this is the kind of work that I'm I'm most proud of right now because it's having an impact, or I hope it is having an impact in in schools. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about how this kind of applied work has also impacted my thinking in in terms of physical education and health education and my and my scholarship. So that's my background and how I came to do um, the work that I do. And I'm going to introduce the next part of my talk um, with two stories. So the next part is going to focus on um, status, issues of status in our field, and um, what I'm calling the well-being agenda. I'm going to start with a kind of story narrative. I recently met with a group of leaders from a high school in New Zealand. Tired of the limitations of current approaches to curriculum and assessment, they wanted to partner with my university, the University of Auckland, 
to reimagine a junior high school curriculum for the year 10 and 11 students. So these are students who are 14, 15 years old. They wanted the new program to be centered on academic excellence, as well as well-being, citizenship, and interpersonal skills. The deputy principal talked about character and values and cultures of care. I was heartened by their thinking and then the effort they were putting into working towards a truly educative rather than assessment driven approach to the school curriculum. In the midst of increasingly neoliberal, privatized and corporatized approaches to schooling, their talk of values and citizenship, I thought actually seemed, well, almost quaint or traditionalist. Or perhaps I felt that because it reminded me of the times when we talked more about pastoral care and less about rank scores and achievement. But the focus on well-being interested me. In the meeting, the school shared their vision for the two, new two-year program. The assistant principal gave a presentation showing how students would study a core of subjects, but also have choices of modules within each core. Using English as an example, she showed how students might choose themes and different kinds of inquiry. One student might choose Shakespeare, another contemporary poetry. In science, she explained students would have to grasp the fundamentals of biology, physics, and chemistry, but they could choose applic application contexts. When it came to physical education, she explained somewhat dismissively that the students would choose a theme. She said, you know, something like teamwork and a context, maybe invasion games and develop skills. The presentation, to be fair, was not focused very strongly on the content of physical education or any of the curriculum subjects, but two things struck me. First was the dismissive tone that she used in talking about physical education content. And the second was how low learning the learning focus seemed to be, how low level the learning focused in physical education seemed to be in comparison to how she was talking about the other curriculum content areas. And I thought, wasn't teamwork that something that students should focus on in any curriculum subject, although I know we have specific ways of doing it in physical education. But isn't it something that students should already have some skills in before they get to high school? This interaction reminded me of another conversation that I'd had with a PE teacher at my daughter's school a few years back. The teacher didn't know that I was a physical education academic. I asked him about expectations for learning in the class. He said, well, as long as students turn up and bring their gear, then that's about as much as I can expect. I spotted a poster on the wall that explained Seed Top's sport education model. And I told him I recognized the approach. I asked if the class would be using sport education this year. He said, no, that's too advanced for year nine students. And these are students who are 13 or 14 years old. And he said that the school only used sport education with their senior high school physical education students. Now I've seen the sport education model put successfully into action with 10 year olds. And so I felt dismayed at his response. In her other classes at the time, my daughter was studying local environmental issues and planning um, actions and activism. They were learning about the social and political consequences of the apartheid system in South Africa. And, and, and they were designing food menus complete with marketing materials. It struck me in both these examples that teachers and school leaders have difficulty articulating the value of learning and physical education. And as a result, the content can sometimes be presented as low level in comparison with other subjects. And my point here is that PE is generally seen as a low status subject. 
And this status is often reinforced by physical education teachers and within schools. And we certainly see this in our universities. The second story I'm going to um, share with you is a little more personal and a little bit more embodied. It's about my own experiences um, in relation to the pandemic. I put in my headphones, press start on my running app, select the get up playlist on Apple Music and leave my house. I run along the street and head downhill toward the Auckland waterfront. I cross through Victoria Park, which is shown there in the picture, and I see skaters playing, gliding, jumping, and looping on the skate park. I see other women running and stretching on the grass. I run past super yachts and cafes as I head towards the waterfront. This area of the city was the port, and now it's a newly developed landscape of buildings, concrete, boat builders, new apartments, palm trees, and playgrounds. The manicured and slightly self-conscious, highly structured gardens are surrounded by hip new urban apartment buildings and shared offices. These sit alongside aging industrial workings of the boat builders and marine, marine storage warehouses. My lower back feels a bit sore as I run and I can feel the hip injury that I've been working on healing, but I feel good. It's the weekend, I'm running, and I feel a new appreciation in my 40s, okay, mid-40s, that I can run and skip and hop and bend. I feel a joy in the movement, the working muscles, and in being out in the city and by the water. Those of you who know me will know that I am not an obsessive exerciser, so you'll be unsurprised to see that I stop for coffee. I look out across the Auckland Harbour and I breathe deeply, before I run back along the Auckland, back along the waterfront track that takes me underneath the Harbour Bridge and up the hill to my house. During this run, I have not seen a single person wearing a mask. I ordered coffee from a crowded cafe in which the only evidence of the pandemic was hand sanitizer and the COVID tracing barcodes displayed on the counter. I know from news, from the news and from friends and family internationally that this experience is not the norm right now. I reflect when I get home that it's been a tough year and it's been a weird year. None of us is untouched by the fundamental shifts the world has experienced as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Even where I live in New Zealand, and I know we've been incredibly lucky, but we have had lockdowns and we've experienced the existential crisis of COVID. In addition to the pandemic, I experienced a divorce, selling my house, buying a new house, and beginning again a life on my own. And what have I turned to to, to sustain me during this year? I've turned to a lot of the tools of well-being: running, yoga, meditation, connecting and socializing with friends. I've turned to the support of family, I've turned to my work colleagues at the University of Auckland and internationally and the pleasure I get from my work. And I've thought a lot about well-being from a much more embodied perspective than I usually do. And I've engaged in various therapies. So I've shared with you here two vignettes. The first, a conversation with a school and a teacher who positioned physical education as low status. The second, 
my own experiences of re-engaging with my physical activity practices and gaining new appreciation for my with my moving body as a way to enhance well-being and meet the challenges of change and of grief. I use these to introduce the themes of this talk, low status of physical education and the challenges of the well-being agenda. And I'm going to explain what I what I mean by these. So we all know, those of us in the field, from comments, from decisions, from how our institutions um, sometimes treat our discipline, and from the kind of conversations we sometimes have in schools, we know that physical education has issues with subject status. As a body subject, it's frequently dismissed as unimportant, non-academic. It's positioned as a subject or a set of activities sometimes designed solely for, for health outcomes. And those of us in the field are constantly railing against the assumption that PE is any or all of these things. I have argued along with many others in the field that if we see physical education as a subject to address health outcomes, then we're selling ourselves and our discipline short and we're forwarding an agenda that's deeply politically problematic. There's been a long history of tensions between health-related agendas and physical education. In my book on critical pedagogy, I mapped the field of physical education um, using the ideas of Pierre Bourdieu's notions of field and capital. For those unfamiliar with Bourdieu, he argues that different forms of capital within a field give status to individuals. And he says that there's three kinds of capital. There's economic capital, which is immediately and directly convertible into money. Is cultural capital, which is convertible on certain conditions into economic capital. And there's social capital made up of social obligations, connections, which are convertible into economic capital, so under, under certain conditions. So I argue that physical education can be seen as a, as a field and using um, Bourdieu's notions of capital, certain things are valued more highly in the field than, than other things. So physical education as a field is also positioned hierarchically um, in subject hierarchies. And so it tends to lose out in comparison to other, other kinds of subjects and disciplines. And part of this is because it's concerned with the body. While the body does hold its own form of capital, physical capital, this is generally treated in education as inferior when it comes to academic pursuits although physical capital is highly valued in, in the general social field and general society. Um, I argued that because physical education is low status in academic terms, and because in my own country, non-white populations such as Māori and Pacific communities tend to be stereotyped as naturally physical as opposed to academic, then the field of physical education also suffers from some racialized um, assumptions. Since the 1980s or even earlier, health concerns have also dominated the field of physical education. And as we know from, from lots of people's work, the fit, thin, healthy body has been held up as a form of capital. Physical education then gets positioned as a way to achieve such a body and such health outcomes. In this sense, the field then also gets aligned with body and beauty norms and has been implicated in the search for thinness, muscularity and physical capital. Physical education has also been charged with the moral imperative to, present, to prevent obesity, to increase physical activity and improve nutrition. And now it has other socially good work to do 
in terms of enabling young people to work in terms of social media um, and other um, digital contexts to improve mental health, well-being um, and resilience. And there's a number of people doing work in that area. There's a, a new book by, well, not that new, a couple of years old from Vicky Goodyear and, and Kathy Armour that's, that's of interest to, to check out. Um, while this isn't new, while these concerns aren't new, they're sort of an extension of the concerns raised by Robert Crawford in the 1970s and consistently ever since by people like David Kirk, Richard Tinning, Jan Wright, Dean McDonald and others. But there seems to be a different kind of edge to this work in light of well-being. And the well-being agenda um, aligns, I think, in some ways um, in, in relation to status. Um, Tessa and Peters argue that well-being is part of the zeitgeist, but they note that there are very different philosophical perspectives on what constitutes well-being. White and McCullum observe that COVID-19 has fundamentally shifted practices in education overnight, and they ask whether this is a crisis or an opportunity for education, and it's undoubtedly both. But they also observe that the focus on well-being, resilience and health now seems to be the question for education. And they say over the last decade, international studies have documented the implementation of well-being programs at the school level. Issues of school belonging and engagement are increasingly recognised as linked with school culture, climate and well-being. There's a growing recognition of challenges faced by students throughout the world from a well-being perspective. And this is quite a fundamental shift, I think, in terms of historically how we've viewed what schooling is for. The current wellbeing agenda is being sold as a kind of remedy, especially to mental health, although other social issues. It's also poorly defined so that wellbeing comes to mean almost anything. But there is some consensus about wellbeing in schools um, addressing mental health issues and the pandemic, a need for balance. And there's no doubt that wellbeing is added to the long list of things that schools are responsible for. So if wellbeing is the new challenge for physical education. It's an old challenge, but it's it's certainly got new packaging. Um, and the digital age is part of the context, if not part of the problem. And COVID-19 is requiring new ways of being, a new focus on physical health and mental health. But it's also removed, at least temporarily, some of the physical ways we are used to operating in physical education then it might be timely for us to consider what this all means for the field and what kind of physical education research we want or need. In the midst of physical education's low status and the push for well-being and the capital associated with doing well-being work because it's attracting funding and it's attracting status, it's tempting to offer physical education and health education as an answer to the well-being crisis. In this, we risk falling into the same trap of proposing PE as the answer to the obesity crisis. It does not serve us, and it turns physical education into an instrumentalist undertaking rather than an educative one. It might be problematic because physical education or any school subject we know can't solve complex health problems, although we can, of course, have impact. So to pause for a moment and reflect on where I've got to so far. In the first part of the talk, I've talked explicitly about two challenges I see for the field of physical education. The first is our ongoing issue with subject status. The second is the pressure to respond to the well-being agenda. 
And the next part of the talk, I'm going to build on some of my work I've been doing and thinking about the ontological issues that are driving research in the field. And then reflect on how these parts of the field might help us to think about subject status and the well-being agenda. So Richard Tinning, there he is, um, suggests that in relation to health issues such as obesity, the field of physical education is currently dominated um, by two positions. He says one position considers that the main mission of PE should now be the war on obesity. Advocates of this instrumental position tend to do research using interventionist strategies, focusing on health and PE as a site for the promotion of physical activity. He says the other position, so he's setting up a dichotomy, argues strongly for the foregrounding of educational purposes for physical education and tends to pursue research by the means of sociocultural research, paradigms such as phenomenology, post-structuralism, or critical theory. He notes that these positions draw on different literatures and discourses, but seldom do the advocates of these two positions speak to each other. And if and when they do, they seem to speak different languages. We're kind of familiar with this argument, I think. Um, I think that Richard's dichotomy is useful, but I wanna add, um, I wanna add to it and think about um, the field of PE. And I'm gonna suggest that there are actually three categories of research. You may agree or disagree with me, you're welcome to. I'd love to, to hear your thoughts at the end. Um, I think that research in the field can be broadly divided into three kinds of research. The first is, is intervention research, and this includes kind of scientific research. Work in this category tends to be concerned primarily with intervening in physical education and physical activity and nutrition in schools and changing the practices of teachers and policymakers and students. Much of this is focused in the current period, at least, on behavior changes related to food intake, drinks, and levels of physical activity, although we're also seeing increasing work um, in the wellbeing space. The second area of the field um, is pedagogical research. This can overlap with the first, with the first category, um, but it tends to be concerned with reworking and diversifying pedagogies in schools, sometimes taking into account context, as in social and political and cultural context, and sometimes it seems to be contextless. It has the intention of improving the state of teaching and the experiences of students. The research includes significant work on models-based practices going back at least 30 years, such as sport education, teaching games for understanding, the social responsibility model, and so forth, as well as more recent work on cooperative learning, quality pedagogies, and movement capabilities, including work on physical literacies. This work, of course, intersects with the fields of teacher education, um, PET, and pedagogy more generally. The third part of the field and where my own work tends to lie, although I do do some, some work in pedagogy, um, is in socially critical or socially cultural research. And I, I kind of refer to this as critical physical education. This is sometimes called social justice work or critical pedagogy. This work is broad in scope and it seeks to politicize and historicize the field and show how complex relations of power intersect to marginalize, exclude, create, and reproduce social and political hierarchies. This work might disrupt, problematize, question and critique practices. 
While researchers in this part of the field do attend to work in two other parts of the field, suggestions for practice are not generally a strength of this work. And there are notable exceptions for this. Um, Kim Oliver's work and then her work with David Kirk, Emma Enright's work are, are exceptions to this. Um, these three approaches frame how research is conducted as well as the possibilities for practice. And I acknowledge that there are some people who work across one, two or more areas, or at least draw on work across the areas. But the ontologies of each area kind of work in some ways to make this a complex undertaking. So if we think about these three areas of the field, it's clear that they have different philosophical concerns driving them. Interventionist research tends to work from a realist ontology. This assumes that there's a reality in which scientific studies prove that health is declining and that we must do something to intervene. Work in this area aims to change behaviors often and it and it's, can be inspired by public health concerns. Education is seen here as a means to an end, the end being better health practices. The intentions are, are really important and really good, but sometimes the work can be reductionist or ignore localized and qualitative experiences. Pedagogical work tends to take a humanistic approach, maintaining an ontology that suggests that teachers are well-intentioned in their work, that choices are possible, and that better practice will result from more knowledge and better education. For example, work that aims to improve the planning, teaching, and pedagogical practice of teachers in schools via models, interventions, or professional learning and development. And much of this work makes, makes an important difference, but it can um, tend to ignore power relations. It also tends to focus on the micro practices rather than the macro, political, social, environmental. Critical research um, tends to take an approach inspired by histories of critical thought, coupled with um, post-structuralism and more recently post-humanism. The argument here is that people are immersed within political and social and cultural contexts that frame their possibilities. And they're located within complex relations of power and networks that create subjectivities and limit or allow possibilities. The intentions here are to show how such relations of power are deeply historical and implicate practice, people and environments, and how physical education often has effects that are unintended but unavoidable because teachers, schools and students are all located in cultural contexts and social hierarchies at the intersection of gender, at the intersections of gender, race, ethnicity, social class, location, abilities, body size, etc. Researchers in this area maintain that if we're to understand or change practices, then we must first understand these complex indices. And this is difficult because these are different in different times and places. Work in this area has focused strongly on how individual students experience physical education and sporting contexts, and a lot of it highlights exclusion. The problem with work in this field is that it can tend to become, down, become bogged down in the politics of identity, and so that subjectivity comes to matter over other concerns. This work does not always lend itself to clear instructions for practice, and it can be sometimes difficult to engage with in terms of the language of social theory. So all of these parts of the field have pros and cons is what I'm arguing. As, as Richard noted, people in each part of the field in general terms don't tend to directly address work in other parts of the field, although there are lots of clear exceptions to this. Hal Lawson reminds us that when researchers have established paradigms, 
they have organized themselves for collective action. Like-minded researchers with identical, similar and comparable aims join forces, he says, in the pursuit of knowledge, of a knowledge-focused agenda. And these divides are important because um, they can create silos of knowledge and they can become echo chambers where we end up only talking to people in our own part of the field. And of course, those people tend to agree with us. These divides also send up a kind of dichotomy between dominant practices in the first part of the field and kind of a resistance to dominant practices. Lawson argues that such paradigmatic boundaries have consequences so that categories and labels signal important internal dynamics regarding what knowledge and whose knowledge counts. They also signal information about social networking, inclusion and exclusion dynamics vis-a-vis -vis paradigm formation and membership. But I wanna suggest that there's a further ontological problem with all three, three areas of the field. Not only that, that they tend to speak to themselves and exclude others, but that each sets up a kind of expectation about what the problem is and what the potential solutions are. So each of these areas is already concerned with advocating um, a kind of position, a future state of physical education and particular kinds of imagined practices. The intervention research imagines that health concerns, especially obesity, but increasingly other health concerns are the most important problem. And so intervention research imagines physical education as for health. Pedagogical research says teaching practice is the most important concern and imagines a future of teachers with a diversity of practices, engaging young people in enjoyable physical education and physical activity centered around usually humanistic concerns. So this becomes physical education for inclusion, for participation and for learning. Critical research imagines social justice and environmental justice as the most important problem and imagines a future where schools engage with addressing pressing issues such as discrimination, the environment, colonization, racism, sexism, heteronormativity and homophobia and other kinds of exclusion. And this physical education has an important responsibility to expose power and achieve social justice, work against discrimination. So this becomes physical education for various kinds of justice. If we think about this with post-colonial theory that I'm a fan of, then these field divides also reinforce what Anne McClintock calls the paradox of abjection. And this is where unacceptable people, places and practices are needed. So we end up defining ourselves and our part of the field or our practices by making other kinds of practices abject or not okay. The abject then is something rejected, but which we keep there as a, as a comparison for what we're doing. And it tends to define kind of field boundaries. And it, it does prevent some engagement across and between. In a 2019 paper, Justin O'Connor and Mike Jess drew and Henry Giroux to argue that to get over these kinds of field boundaries, we should engage in border crossing and research collaborations. And they advocate for scholarship that is transdisciplinary and which might involve a fluid approach. I think they make some compelling arguments for transdisciplinarity, but I'm not sure they address the problem of ontology. They do note that knowledge is contested and not necessary to resolve, but they don't tell us how to have conversations across ontological boundaries. 
In a paper um, last year on how teachers and schools might be engaged to change their practices, and they're talking about how teachers might become more critical practitioners, Laura Alfrey and Justin O'Connor argued that the key is transformation, which they characterize as irreversible, as integrative, and as troublesome for a range of reasons. They say that teachers need to transform and that this requires changes in language and subject matter and ontologies, as well as reimagining identities. They, they draw on the post-colonial notion of liminality and suggest that embracing liminality or kind of a fluid um, approach to learning um, might help to disrupt their thinking. And they, they imagine that as we change and as we engage with different parts of, of the field or different knowledges that we might see this oscillation between new and old ideas. I think that's an interesting way to think about it. However, I think that the ideas of field crossing and transformation might indeed open up new possibilities for challenging ideas and foci, or they might actually just end up reinforcing the boundaries between parts of the field. Lawson argues that all research paradigms have epistemic gatekeepers. I quite like this notion. These are leaders in parts of the field who are recognized in contexts like this for their publications, involvement in journal editing, keynote speeches and the like. And he argues that these leaders can reproduce the boundaries or perhaps build bridges in line with the work of Kuhn between paradigms and enable new ideas. So while these different parts of the field are divided, we are all, no matter where we're situated, grappling with a hyped up well-being agenda. So how does this well-being agenda align with, interrupt or reinforce the divides in the field? And I'm thinking about how each part of the field might respond to or is responding to the, the increased pressure on schools to address well-being. So intervention research, I think, may be likely to suggest that well-being can be impacted, enhanced by participation in physical activity. It assumes that there's an objective way to measure and to know well-being and its determinants. And this may have the following pros and cons. Schools may be convinced through this to increase physical activity programs. Well-being may get reduced to psychometric indicators that ignore embodied holistic and contextual factors. And I'm seeing this a little bit in New Zealand with schools being pushed to actually measure um, the well-being of their students on, in terms of well-being, the objective well-being indicators. And some schools are um, suggesting that this is a way to assess whether learning and health education is, is valid. So I think that's, that's problematic. Um, physical education may become a vehicle in schools instead of physical activity rather may become a vehicle in schools instead of physical education and this is an ongoing an ongoing concern I have so that the learning part becomes marginalized or deprioritized. Pedagogical research um, may suggest that skills are prioritized that teacher well-being becomes a focus that might be a good thing and that inclusive pedagogies will enhance well-being. This could result on a greater privileging, and we're seeing this a little bit of social and emotional learning and learning strategies such as positive psychology and mindfulness. And this is certainly um, apparent in schools right now. It can have the, the following pros and cons. It can focus on skill learning and practice. Perhaps it gains more time for physical education. Student and teacher wellbeing may be talked about more than results and behavior changes. 
it might risk being individualistic and easily commercialized. And we're certainly seeing that with positive psychology and mindfulness programs. Um, and it can create some confusion about the difference between health outcomes, well-being outcomes, and learning outcomes. And I think this is probably a problem across all parts of the field. Um, critical research is likely to question the underpinnings of the well-being agenda and critique the Western basis of thinking underpinning notions of well-being. It may insist that individualistic approaches are contextualized to recognize the effect of racialized, gendered, ableist, and heteronormative cultures on well-being. This may have the following pros and cons. It may question, raise questions about the pedagogical possibilities. It may highlight indigenous and non-Western approaches to well-being. It can combine the personal or individual with the political. And it can be confused or create further confusion also about the difference between health outcomes, well-being outcomes, and learning outcomes. And we're certainly seeing this in schools that teachers are quite confused about the difference between those things. In my own work in, on well-being and mental health education in response to the well-being agenda in New Zealand, I've grappled with these issues in the national policy context. And so in this third part of the talk, I want to share with you how we went about thinking about the ontologies and practicalities of doing this work. So part three, I'm going to suggest that, well, I'm going to share with you the work that I've done in mental health education and think about how we actually combine, rather than thinking about how we want to work across these field boundaries, I'm going to suggest that we need the knowledge from all three parts of the field in order to have a, a holistic and meaningful approach to curriculum. So I've just finished um, writing a, um, a, a new policy for the New Zealand Ministry of Education um, on mental health education. So this is the, the policy on the left there. It's, it hasn't quite finished being through the design phase, so I, I kind of made up that cover, but it'll look something like that. It's going to come out in about the next month, and um, Associate Professor Melinda Weber, who's a, an Indigenous Māori scholar and an education psychologist, works with me at the University of Auckland. We co-led this project. Um, and our aim was to make that curriculum really bicultural, so to have Indigenous knowledge and Western knowledge um, both e equal partners in, in that policy. Um, the, the book that I put up there is, is directly connected to the policy, so the Ministry asked us to work with the knowledge that we'd um, used in the resource to help us guide the national policy statement for schools as well. So I've been thinking about how, what might um, be the best kind of epistemological and ontological approach to mental health education in schools in the last few years um, through this work. So these, these, this policy and this book are a response to the mental health crisis that is, is happening in New Zealand. There's, there's all kinds of stats that show that rates of anxiety and depression are increasing among young people, and this is a global phenomenon. Um, and the Ministry of Education have felt a responsibility to, to have some response to this. So we've we've used this moment, but we're not claiming that this work can solve that mental health crisis, but rather that there is a role for education to play in helping young people um, in, in terms of learning. So we've come at this work in a specific way. Um, 
in terms of approaching the knowledge that we've that we are suggesting that schools use. So I think it's it'll be compelling for physical education to align itself with new versions of the well-being agenda as something to offer the mental health crisis. But I think we need to proceed with caution in relation to this. The reason for this focus is that health issues are always a complex combination of social, political, biological, and contextual factors. So we know from um, the extensive work of, of Michael Marmot and Marmot and Wilkinson that there's a huge amount of international work um, in the area of health equity. And this kind of thinking um, was influential for us in writing this policy. As a field, this research, health equity research, explores why some populations and individuals are disproportionately healthier than others. Underpinning this research is an understanding that the interrelationships between individuals, cultures, and environments are imperative to any attempt to explain or impact health inequalities. Public health scholars have sought to understand health inequities in many different ways. In order to get beyond the limits of individualistic analyses, the determinants of health, especially the social determinants have been widely explored. The issue in health equity is actually the fact that societies are unequal. Health outcomes are unequal because our societies are unequal. And this is referred to as the health gradient or the social gradient in health. Wilkinson and Marmot summarized the situation as follows. People further down the social ladder usually run at least twice the risk of serious illness and premature death as those near the top. And we know these patterns exist right across um, Western nations. They point out, however, that the effects are not confined to the poor. The social gradient in health runs right across society so that even among middle-class office workers, lower ranking staff suffer much more disease and earlier death than higher ranking staff. Now that just absolutely floors me. Every time I read that, that absolutely floors me to think that actually it's not just about socioeconomic status that impacts health outcomes and hierarchies, but it's actually about social status. So even among middle-class office workers, lower ranking staff suffer much more disease and death than higher ranking staff. So this shows us that social hierarchies that are entirely invented um, have a really meaningful and real impact on people's physical health. So this means that how people fear in society in comparison to others matters. If everyone has similar resources and access to healthcare, then health outcomes are likely to be similar at a population level. However, if access is uneven and the society is highly stratified, which we know most of our societies are, then there will be unequal outcomes. This all makes good sense, but the key factor is that social hierarchies make a difference. So status makes a difference. If we want to address and help health and well-being, then I think we need to study, we need to understand these social hierarchies and how they impact, and we need to help young people understand them. We need to study health as a discipline, develop complex knowledge and skills, and focus on learning. Learning about health can, of course, impact health status. We know actually the better educated people are, the better their likelihood of better health long term. But it's the learning that's important thing and the, and the accrual of capital, of course, rather than the indoctrination to a set of health rules. So in, this pol in the policies and the resource that I mentioned, um, we've conceptualized here mental health, education as encompassing a wide range of knowledge and skills. 
including learning about all of these things, identity, well-being, interpersonal skills, social and emotional learning, resilience, indigenous knowledge, but also understanding how social hierarchies and power relations impact individuals. So this, these resources absolutely include positive psychology and mindfulness and well-being education, but within social and political contexts alongside learning about social hierarchy, discrimination, and skills for social active and activism. And one, um, one example that I often use with teachers and school principals, um, school leaders, when I'm talking about this work, is to give them the example of a child who's experiencing racism in the school environment. And while positive psychology might be actually useful to that child, it's not gonna help change the context that is discriminating and, and creating trauma. So we need to have both. Positive psychology can be really useful, but it tends to be quite individualistic. And we also need to learn about issues like racism um, and forms of exclusion so that we can create more inclusive, better environments for that young person. We know from research in New Zealand, for example, by both the Adolescent Health Research Group and the work that Dylan has done, um, that young people who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer or intersex are much more likely to experience bullying and discrimination at school. And this, of course, impacts mental health. So if we ignore the issues of social exclusion and just focus on individualistic measures then, and learning, then we're not actually going to impact mental health and well-being effectively. So I'm saying what I'm arguing here is that mental health education, according to the way that we're, we're trying to work with it at a curriculum and policy level in New Zealand, has to include knowledge from all of those three parts of the field of physical education, or in this context, health education and health promotion, um, public health. We need all of the knowledge from all of those different parts of the field. So if physical education wants to contribute to and be part of the conversation about health and well-being and the new kind of conversation we're having about health and well-being, it needs to be from a truly educative approach. And we need to include knowledge from all three parts of the field. Interventionist approaches might focus on the uptake of well-being enhancing behaviors, but these are unlikely to be effective alone and they, they do risk reinforcing some social inequities depending on how we do them. Interventions that measure well-being might help us to understand the mental health crisis, um, but they're not gonna give us the pedagogical knowledge that we need. And we need that from, from the field, um, the part of the field that deals with pedagogy. Um, physical education might approach well-being and mental health from pedagogical and critical perspectives, focus on quality teaching and learning as well as social justice, and seek to engage with and address the messy relations of power that are inherent in our schools to help young people learn about these and to help young people to take action um, and have agency. So I'm going to end um, just to wrap up and make the following points. I think the well-being agenda might actually be an opportunity for physical education, another opportunity for physical education to engage with contesting its low subject status. The health and well-being of young people is on the minds of schools and on the international agenda in ways that we have not seen before. And I think there's potential for the conversation to be much more holistic than say the obesity agenda um, allowed. 
But the field may be limited if we continue to work in silos in different parts of the field rather than talk across and between and draw on the different ontological and epistemic possibilities. But I think I don't think we necessarily need to engage in different kinds of research in different parts of the field. I think there's ontological barriers um, to that, and I don't think it's always that productive. Rather, I think we need to acknowledge that the different parts of the field actually produce different kinds of knowledge and that all of that knowledge is valuable. I'm not convinced we need to research across and between, but we need to read and understand and value the knowledge produced in each part of the field. And I think the way we might combine the parts of the field is to bring those diverse knowledges into the school curriculum so that um, we can engage this knowledge in schools in truly educative ways, share this knowledge with young people. And I think in our higher education context, certainly as well, but we, we're probably more used to doing that in, in our university programs. Um, I think we want young people to study physical education from multiple epistemological perspectives. And then we might not only move the field forward, but also um, have a chance to continue contesting its low subject status. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Thank you so much um, for listening. I hope it all came across okay. It's um, I can see a few of you, but it's um, it's quite weird speaking to my own computer in my office. So I, I hope it was okay. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Katie. Um, you can't you can't hear or see us on, or everybody, I'm sure, but we're uh, we're clapping for you. Um, very very uh, uh, great talk, and really appreciate your comments. Um, so we we do have uh, some time, and we can make some additional time uh, as well. The the session was supposed to end at eight fifteen. Uh, Eastern, but of course we had the issue with going from there from the ARA platform to Zoom. So um, we we can kind of hang out for as long as people would like to here on the Zoom platform, um, which I'm really excited about because I'm thinking that that folks will want to engage and ask some questions at this point. So. Um, Folk, you can either uh, unmute to ask questions um, or you can uh, drop questions in the chat and we can go about it that way. We might want to do the hand um, raise hand function if we have lots of questions. So we'll see how it goes. Um, but go ahead and raise your hand or drop it in the chat and then you can unmute. I see a lot of gratitude coming through in the chat. <laughs> you left us all speechless, I think, Katie. I'm sure someone's got a question or a comment. Trying to practice good teacher wait time right now. Well, Dr. Uh, Fitzpatrick, this is Tian Zhang. Uh, I have a question related to the way that you're choosing the future objectives for this field. You mentioned about uh, uh, health education, uh, physical education should probably um, not shall sell, uh, short sell ourselves, but aiming high. So you choose, um, you know, mental health as objective. Um, there are a whole lot of evidence suggesting that uh, using PE as a way to change behavior um, is, uh, is, is feasible, especially if you tightly control the context, tightly control the intervention. Um, have you ever um, think about maybe choosing mental health as objective as a long, short, long shot uh, compared to um, you know, changing the behavior for physical health. So I think um, if I understand your, your question correctly, you're asking whether physical education can have 
an impact on mental health and whether we should be arguing that? Yeah, well, is there any solid evidence suggesting that we can achieve measurable result that can be directly linked to mental health? Mm. So I think there's lots of evidence about the impact of, of various kinds of, of physical activity on, on, individual, on individuals' mental health and well-being. The issue we have with um, taking that as our goal in schools, I think, is that we have a diversity of young people and we know that well-being is culturally located and socially located. Um, it, it intersects with our gender and ethnicity um, and sexuality. So if we try to put in place a physical activity initiative that impacts everybody's mental health, we, we may get some results from that that might be interesting. Um, but I would say that it, it may create more problems than answers in terms of diversity and not meeting the needs of all young people. But there's a bigger problem with doing that in that when we measure well-being, we're really measuring the determinants of health because a, a program in schools cannot have a meaningful long-term impact on the determinants of health because people's environments, socioeconomic status are just going to override that. Um, I'm not saying that it can't make any difference, but I think that it's unrealistic to think that, that some lessons in schools can um, outweigh the determinants of health. So my argument is that I think we should focus on the learning because if we learn and study and truly understand the knowledge and skills and practices um, of, of mental health in the field and we understand what the debates are, we understand that not everything works for each, each person, then it's much more likely to increase the learning for young people and communities and that may have a more impactful um, result in terms of mental health and well-being um, but we're, we're kind of up against it in terms of the determinants of health so I think if we if we value the learning then it's truly an educative undertaking rather than a than a health focused well-being undertaking although they're not I, I tend to dichotomize them a little bit in my work and they're not they're not entirely um, dichotomies mm, thank you yes thank you Katie um, uh, Hal Lawson has a question Thank you very much for an exciting and engaging and very sophisticated lecture that um, represents a significant departure from at least the North American perspective as I understand it. Uh, the North American perspective, as you know, is heavily steeped in the psychological sciences um, and more particularly in behaviorism. Um, and you bring a sociocultural perspective grounded in histories of cultural practices and framed against profound social stratification and indeed inequality. The shift that you propose is monumental, merely a paradigm shift of sorts. And as you indicate, that will require some cross-boundary communication and coordination. How do you see that happening? And more particularly, who will provide it? Do you see, for example, this audience of leading physical education researchers 
representing several parts of the world as being in the vanguard of that? And if so, what kind of an adjustment do you see in their orientations and particularly in their doctoral programs? Great question, thanks. <laughs> thanks, Al. Um, I, I mean, something that I've, I, I, I realized when I first started traveling um, to the US and coming to, to AERA and, and engaging with all of you there, um, and I was very, very lucky to, to be a visiting scholar with Steve when he was at um, Teachers College, and I, I learned a lot at that time about the U.S. and, and U.S. scholarship, which I'd read, of course, but it, 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 it really changes when you go to a place and, and you understand it more culturally. And it made me realize how I'm very much a product, like we all are, of, of the social, cultural, political, historical places that, that we've grown and lived in and learned in and developed in. So it made me think a lot about how different New Zealand is to the U.S. and the pros and cons of each of those. Um, and then as I've gone to other places, to the UK, to Sweden, to Spain, um, of course, we have a lot of uh, connection with colleagues in Australia. I, I'm i not sure whether everyone needs to change what they're doing. I think we, we, we need to value the histories of work that are going on in our contexts and um, to combine those in ways that are that are now really possible. I mean, they've they've been possible for a long time in terms of we all read each other's papers, but we now have a much more global community. The fact that I'm here in New Zealand, being able to speak to you all in the US on this platform, we know it has limitations, but there's huge advantages to this. And I think if we can draw on the work of others um, and value that knowledge for its own sake rather than having to try and do that work it might not be appropriate it's not appropriate for me to do psychometric work as steve will tell you i wouldn't know the first thing but how to undertake that kind of research but um i i value that work i value the outcomes of that work and it informs my work and, and my thinking so i think my concern about the field is that we've we've got so many schisms now of of people who uh are splitting off into various areas and we have collections of scholars and meetings where we just talk about our own ontological and epistemological work um, and there's nothing wrong with that but and, and it may increase the the scholarship in that area but I think we need context like this and I think ARA is a great example of a context where we have people working from diverse epistemological um, bases to bring into conversation. And we need all of that work in the field, I think, and we need to bring all of that work into schools and into our university programs. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not convinced that, that it's about the transdisciplinary and interdisciplinary research team idea. I think it's, it's great, it's, um, it's, it's bold, and um, I, I've seen it go very wrong because people just can't talk across those ontological boundaries. It's, it, it's possible to do, but it, takes a lot of time and a lot of important unlearning and relearning where whereas I think maybe if we if we just use each other's work more and think about the field incorporating all the kinds of work then it, it might be more productive but you might have a view about that as well I, I think your 2009 paper that I quoted um and in my talk was really valuable with thinking about gatekeepers and how gatekeepers keep in or out certain kinds of knowledge sponsor we see this with who gets sponsored by senior scholars in the field you know particular kinds of work um and i think it's a challenge to all of us to think about sponsoring and and um 
creating opportunities for people who work in different parts of the field to the ones we do. May I follow up quickly, Kevin? Of course. What would you think is, a, given your background, of having every teacher, no matter where they are, uh, coming to understand that their work is fundamental to the social construction and constitution of reality for individuals as well as the groups of kids who are in those schools and for schools overall. Yeah, I think I, I think that's the role of philosophy and 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 teacher education programs, right? And it's been um, it's it's kind of been it's certainly been marginalised here. The history, the history of thinking, the philosophy of thought, and of of education um, gets very little time in our teacher education programs. But I I think that's that's really crucial so that teachers understand what they choose to teach about, who they are, and what they bring to the field. Um, yeah, constructs what's possible in that space. Thank you. Thank you so much for those questions, Carl. Thank you. Uh, any other questions um, for Katie? Okay, well, well not hearing uh, any other questions coming, um, let me uh, again thank you, uh, Katie, for, for an excellent talk. You've given us all a lot to think about. Um, uh, and we can uh, you know, start to bring the business meeting to close here. If you haven't already, please make sure that you vote um, in, in the, um, the, the, the Qualtrics survey that went out to determine how we're going to address uh, that issue with the, the, the SIG Scholar Honor Area. Um, and we do have uh, another SIG session tomorrow. It's our last uh, paper session of the conference. So look forward to seeing many of you there. Um, and uh, thank you for a successful business meeting. So I think uh, we, we can go ahead and wrap up. Thank you again to Katie uh, and to everybody else who participated.